It's the 7th of September, 2018. This is The Room Now We Can Review. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week, advice on allopurinol dosing. How about some advice on how to assess and monitor patients with lupus? Even better, advice on going to medical school. Let's start out with a report on methotrexate and psoriasis. I don't know about you, but I'm sort of against using methotrexate and psoriasis. I don't think it's all that effective. It's certainly not that effective in psoriatic arthritis. It does work in skin psoriasis. It's probably worth a try, but really what's the data? And should rheumatologists know this? Well, there actually have been several trials that have shown low level of efficacy. And there's one that was recently reported in the literature. It's a study of 120 patients who are methotrexate naive and who had active uh, plaque psoriasis and were randomized to receive either placebo injections or subcutaneous methotrexate that was escalated to a maximum of, I think, around 22 or 25 milligrams uh, after eight weeks. The endpoint was 16 weeks, and the outcome was the usual posse 75 outcomes. What they showed in this trial was that at 16 weeks, methotrexate was more efficacious than placebo with a posse 75 score of 41% and a 10% POSI 75 score in the placebo population. While this is a positive result and certainly merits use in patients with cutaneous psoriasis, it is a low level response, especially when you consider some of the astronomical numbers seen, like over 80% with the IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors, where they're actually showing um, POSI 90 and POSI 100 scores that are quite impressive, often more than 50%. Um, this is good, but this is not great. And what's good in the world of psoriasis and psoriatic disease, control of skin disease can be great. So I think you should know this data. It may be required to use this dose, but then again, there are greener pastures beyond methotrexate. An interesting study comes in the, from the, really the, the renal literature, looking at patients with chronic kidney disease, CKD, who are on allopurinol. This is a study of 114 patients in a single clinic that were followed, and these patients who had renal insufficiency is defined as a GFR of less than 45 cc's per minute were studied. Turns out all these patients were on allopurinol. The mean dose was 192, 200 milligrams a day, ranging from 50 to 450, and half these patients actually had a diagnosis of gout. However, not all these patients actually met a target dose a target urate uh, level of 6.0 or less. In fact, it was less than 50%. Uh, and again, while I don't think this is a great study, I do think this is an important study because it says a few things. It says mainly that even with patients with renal disease, they're probably underdosing with allopurinol. The allopurinol should be pushed to achieve the target uric acid level rather than worry too much about the effects of allopurinol on renal function. And Patients who have, you know, above 30 cc's, there's probably very little effect on renal function when using allopurinol. So doses of 450, 600, or maybe higher are possible in patients who actually have renal disease. An interesting study comes from Jeff Curtis's group um, who reported on the utility of tocilizumab in preventing cardiovascular events. As you know, there's good data out there about uh, uh, TNF inhibitors and methotrexate preventing cardiovascular death and cardiovascular events. And there's also a warning with tocilizumab that if you use this agent, you may experience hyperlipidemia in up to 20% of patients, and some of those will actually require therapy. The question is, 
will this hyperlipidemia associated with tocilizumab, or for that matter, with tofacitinib, be uh, equate to a higher risk of cardiovascular events? As you know, we reported several months ago about the INTRAC trial, which was a comparison of uh, patients on tocilizumab versus uh, etanercept and showed no difference in cardiovascular event rates, um, no significant difference in cardiovascular event rates, although there were a few more in tocilizumab, but it was not significant. And that was a three-year study appropriately powered. This particular study looked, looked at claims data looked at 88, over 88,000 individuals, uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients who were taking uh, a number of different biologics, including tocilizumab, and compared the event rate for cardiovascular risk, and they had a composite definition uh, for uh, cardiovascular events, and, and they compared tocilizumab to abatacept, or tuximab, etanercept, adalimumab, and infliximab, and they showed essentially no difference numerically uh, between the um, rates of cardiovascular events on these different biologics. They looked at an adjusted hazard ratio and showed all of them basically to be one and crossing zero, with the only exception being the um, infliximab, which had a hazard ratio, adjusted hazard ratio of 1.61, and it did cross and was above one overall, suggesting there, that might be a risk factor uh, for cardiovascular events uh, in patients taking uh, etanercept versus the other biologics. But for tocilizumab, not the case. That's good news for those people on tocilizumab. What about patients who are uh, being uh, treated and monitored for lupus? The Canadian Rheumatism Association came up with uh, expert guidelines uh, this past month, uh, published in JRoom, and these were guidelines made up of by a number of different doctors, including a patient uh, and 23 rheumatologists and others. And they looked at a number of different parameters as far as the assessment of patients with uh, lupus and also their monitoring over time. What they came up with, I think, was instructive. Uh, you should look at the, the citation. They have pediatric rheumatologists on, on this committee, by the way. Number one, they said everybody should be seen by a rheumatologist. Two, that they should have a, a validated a, a regular disease activity measure. They should also be assessed every um, annually for a, valid, a validated measure of of damage. They suggested patients should be assessed for cardiovascular risk, uh, especially risk factors including smoking, hypertension, diabetes, uh, dyslipidemia, and that should be done periodically. Uh, carotid ultrasound should not be a part of that assessment unless they otherwise have disease. Patients should be assessed for osteoporosis. They should have vitamin D levels assessed. If they are on high-dose glucocorticoids or have a history or symptoms of osteonecrosis, they should be assessed for osteonecrosis. For women of childbearing age, they should be tested for Rho and La uh, during um, their first trimester or prior to conceiving if they're planning pregnancy. For women who, have, who are pregnant and have active lupus nephritis, they recommend screening for creatinine and urine protein to creatinine ratios every four to six weeks throughout the pregnancy uh, and less so thereafter. Sexually active women with lupus should be screened for cervical cancer. Um, every three years, at least up until age 69. Uh, they recommend vaccination with influenza annually. They recommend screening for hepatitis B surface antigen and hep C virus in patients with lupus. I think we mostly do all those things, but do you do all those things? That's the challenge here, and you probably should consider that based on these recommendations from the Canadian Rheumatism Association. Lastly, I'll end up with a, a synopsis of a report that appeared in the August 28th edition of JAMA. This was a letter from a physician at the University of Chicago, uh, Dr. Sifu, 
uh, where he was giving advice to a student starting medical school. I used some of this content during a recent uh, white coat ceremony speech I gave at St. George's University in Grenada, and I'm going to sort of excerpt this for you and try to do this quickly. But I think it's really nice and, and worth a read, if not worth a listen here. He writes that he sat at his desk trying to write a letter to a student who was actually the, the, the daughter of some of his best friends, and he wanted to write an inspiratory letter. He wanted to, you know, something to give her as she go, went off to medical school, but he's having a hard time finding the words. So while struggling to find the right words, I saw a drawing hanging on my wall. It'd been there for 25 years. I thought, let me write about that because there's three important lessons in that. I met E, the patient, during my internship in 1993. Um, he was a struggling artist, he was homosexual, and he was concerned about being infected with HIV. After taking his history and doing his exam, I recommended HIV testing. However, the, pac the patient said, not going to happen. Uh, we argued our positions about HIV testing, why it should or why he wouldn't do it, and this was to become the script that they would reenact every three months for the next three years. At each visit, the patient would say no. So even though he thought that he was failing the patient, that the visits were fruitless, he was actually forming a friendship with that patient. A year later, the patient called him breathless, uh, was, uh, and he was admitted to the hospital, had pneumocystis pneumonia, uh, was diagnosed with HIV, uh, opportunistic infection and active HIV, went on treatment for both his health and his immune system were restored, and um, the patient goes on. What about that painting on the wall? Well, from that actually comes three lessons. Lesson number one, often the most important service we provide a patient is not what we think it is, meaning it's not just the knowledge and the diagnostics and whatnot. While he thought he was failing his patient, he was in fact forming a therapeutic alliance that would serve the patient well when he needed that doctor most. Uh, he could reach out to him and, and had a certain degree of trust. There's another student, a, a story about a man admitted to the hospital with two problems. One, he was terribly sick, and two, he hated doctors. He, uh, once they made him well enough uh, the, to talk for himself, he threatened to sign out against medical advice. But there was this third-year medical student that was on service who formed an alliance with the patient and really saved his life because he turned that, 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 that terribly sick individual into someone who stayed in the hospital for two weeks and lived and left the hospital two weeks later. So while students don't really have much in the way of knowledge and acumen to offer, they have a great deal to offer in interest, time, curiosity, and their ideals. Lesson number two, much of what you are taught is wrong. So your most committed and brilliant teachers will also teach you, teach you things that will in fact be shown to be wrong later. That could be because of time or because they were wrong from the start. One of his mentors was a truly great doctor, a committed educator, a well-rounded physician, um, and he had taught him a tremendous amount and was his favorite and, and uh, most important mentor. However, he, I recognized that some of what he taught me was wrong. He taught me, for instance, that be, getting close to patients was a dangerous thing and that you shouldn't accept patients, um, gifts from patients. So six, six months after um, I uh, um, met E, after actually six months after E's admission, I'm sorry, uh, I took a job in a new city. I told E I was living. He gave me a hug, told me he had a gift for me. It was a special painting. I refused it, and today I feel stupid because this was a, a, a personal thank you, a non-monetary creation of his own, and here I was turning him down. However, years later, I was thrilled when E sent me a, a, a tube that contained that painting that now hangs in my office. He gave me a, a second chance to accept the gift in a way I couldn't refuse. 
The last lesson is lesson number three, keep a sunshine folder. In it, you can stash your notes from patients, pictures, great letters of recommendation, small accolades of a job well done. Ease drawing was the beginning of my sunshine folder. Why do you need a sunshine folder? Because medicine's hard, there are hard days, you don't always do well. A sunshine folder is always there to brighten your spirits on difficult days that will lie ahead. I commented to the students, I had my sunshine folder and I didn't have a name for it, but now I do. It has these pictures and these letters and whatnot, but the favorite thing in my sunshine folder is my ugly tie rack. My ugly tie rack is actually a collection of ties given to me by patients who could not afford to buy me ties. These uh, ties were to say the least interesting and at their worst fashion disasters. They had bonsai trees on them, they had giraffes on them, the colors were horrible, they were wide, they were skinny, they were from another era, from another solar system as far as the colors, but as ugly as they were, they were given with love and thanks. I collected every one of them, I hang them on my coat rack inside my door, and when I go to work every day, it's there, and I notice them and it reminds me of something. Even better is when a not-so-well-dressed faculty member sort of runs into my office hurriedly having an important meeting or an unexpected consult at the hospital and says, I need, the, I need a tie, and I point to that tie rack, and they look at me and they go, really? Well, you know, they take that tie, um, and they hope that nobody will, will look at them. So that tie rack keeps on giving. I can think this is a really good piece. You should probably look at it in JAMA. That's it for this week. Go on the website. Check out these citations and more. Uh, we'll see you next week on roomnow.com.